reveal the truth. Yep, there can you, you hear go. me? There yeah. you go. Gotcha. Now, I, I apologize for that. But the importance of that is for for my listeners is to understand, right, that as you've heard me say many times, that I'm just doing this. I'm doing this because you know uh it's important to me to provide uh, a safer community for my child, for one, and for two, to pay back the, to the detriment that I committed. Right. I was a bad person. I was a I was a very bad person to the community and I owe a lot to my community. And and so these are, are the issues that that um that I sit with and, and the reason why I do this, but I get up in the morning, I do my editing, I go Uber all day, I do my recordings. This is my life seven days a week. And I do that because people need it. Right. And if I can do it other people in our communities have to do the same thing. They have to find ways. Like I sacrifice sports. I don't watch sports anymore because sports aren't that important, mm-hmm. right? All sports was doing was taking my money. They wouldn't put money back in my pocket. Sports isn't doing anything for our public school system. Sports isn't doing anything for our communities other than take our money. So right. I, I put that to the side, you know, I, I found things that I can nip from my schedule that was keeping me distracted and it allowed me the time to do these things because they're important to me and i urge other citizens to do that as well to get in contact with their communities so i say all that a lot of a lot of people just like to sit back and let things happen and mind their business and stay out of it that's how that's how majority is and and be armchair quarterbacks Yep. And, and, and meanwhile, they'll walk past a homeless person who's asking for $2 and tell them to go get a job without even really understanding <clears throat> what that even means. You know right. what I mean? It's just easy for them to say, go get a job, because in their, in their mind, it pacifies their mind as to why they're not giving them $2, because they know they got $2. Yeah. But they have to justify a reason in their mind, right, not to give this person $2 so they don't feel guilty about it. Right. And this is what we have to stop because it, it doesn't fix anything. So <laughs> leading right back into the corruption where we, where we ended at, you know, getting into the, into the DOC, the Department of Corrections, and knowing what I know and what I've shared on my shows and you experiencing this, it sounds like really for the first time being involved in that type of environment going from as you described a, a sheltered environment, you know, to being thrown in the middle of, of the crux of, of America's issues. Right. Yeah. That's one way to look at it for sure. <laughs> um, definitely. I definitely did not expect, you know, to see and hear and, and know 
what I was getting into when I got signed on with the Department of Corrections. You know, I started out at Tomoka in Daytona Beach. Um, I was, yeah, I was just an officer at that time. So I didn't have the means or the capability to really get out there and venture around the compound and learn what was going on. You know, I was brand new there. As you know, when you're a new officer, you get locked down in the dorm. They leave you there all day. You can't go nowhere. You can't leave the bubble. You're, you're stuck. And so we know I, that you're a new officer. Right. So I, I didn't have that, that capability of getting out onto the compound, going to all the dorms, associating with all the other officers and, you know, and learning what was going on. You know, that all didn't happen for me until I got promoted to Lake CI in 2014. So I went four years as an officer, kind of really blind to, to, to see what was going on. I mean, I kind of knew and heard what was going on, but I really didn't have the, the means to see it for myself until I got promoted, until I was in a position where I could put myself somewhere to see what was going on and, and see it for myself and, and talk to other sergeants about some of the things. So that's, that's how it started. What's the worst thing you saw in prison? Um, I would probably have to say when an inmate jumped off the second tier to hang himself. Next to that would be stabbings for me. Yeah. How do you live with that? Um, well, I didn't, it didn't affect me like I guess it would affect others, you know. Um, I guess I felt good about myself because I literally tried to save the guy that was hanging. You know, other inmates helped as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, after getting the noose off of his neck, um, you know, I felt good about at least doing that and getting him to medical and, you know, and letting them take it from there. Um, the stabbings, I, I, I guess it, 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 in my mind, it was maybe, you know, from growing up on the streets, you know, seeing certain types of violence and it, it really didn't affect me like it would affect other people. You know, I, I had an inmate who was having a heart attack on the rec yard, came to me and holding his chest and, you know, sorry, something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong. And as soon as he's holding his chest, I'm like, oh, this guy's having a heart attack or something. Took him to medical, you know, ultimately out on an ambulance. I, I had to go with him to the hospital, went into surgery, had to get a uh, defibrillator put in. He came out of it. He's, he looks at me. He's like, Sarge, thanks. You saved my life. I felt good. You know, you feel good about, forget about the fact that he's an inmate. He's a person. But, you, you know, you feel good about that. And that was a good positive thing for me. Have you ever beat any inmates? Never. Never had to. And for me, I always worked the way that everybody should work. You know, I treated them the way I wanted to be treated. Now, there was moments where it, it got a little scary and hairy for me, you know, when, um, you know, you, you think an inmate's going to get violent with you and you just do your best to de-escalate it. You know, I was very good at using my verbal judo, 
talk them down. I mean, I literally had one on the rec yard that had a, I think he had a razor or something in his hands and, and he was face to face with me. Right. And I was talking him down, talking him down. He was a mental health inmate. And if he was going to do anything, I was prepared for it either way. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to, I didn't want to pull my gas out and really scare him at that moment because he was coming down from his, whatever it was. And there was a Sergeant coming behind him and he was coming in slow, you know, because he seen that everything was still kind of, you know, on the down low and he grabbed him and then boom, the situation was over. I was kind of happy about that. Another time an inmate stabbed another inmate in front of my dorm. You know, I called it in right away and I went running over and, and, he had the shank in his hand wrapped around his wrist and, you know, he was ready and he stabbed him once and I popped the gas and I gassed him. He started getting disoriented and four other officers came running out of confinement and I could see them in the distance and they were running towards me and the inmate. What they didn't see was the inmate still had the shank in his hand. They didn't see that. I seen it. So now I was like, Oh shit, I gotta, I gotta do something. I, I can't tackle the guy but I got to do something else. So just as they approached to tackle him, I gassed him again and I sprayed all the officers as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it happens, but in the end they understood and they actually thanked me for gassing him the second time because they didn't see the shank. And that was one of my two uses of force in the department of corrections. I only have two mm -hmm. and I'm proud. I'm proud of those two because I, I know how to talk to them. In the 10 years. The first use of force, yeah, in 10 years, the first use of force was because of a lazy sergeant who didn't want to get up out of his chair in confinement. And I was doing my rounds and an inmate was cutting himself. Hmm. But, be but before he cut himself, I notified the sergeant what was happening. And he, he didn't want to even go up there and talk to the inmate, pull him out of the cell, whatever. And he was lazy. So I just happened to be walking by the cell and he's, he's cutting himself. And at that time, when I was you know, working for the department, if they were cutting themselves, it was policy that you would gas them. And, I, and that's what I did. That was my job. And those are the only two uses of force I have. Hey, you know, it's, it's, um, it hurts me, man, so much to hear these things because I've, I've seen it. I've been there, but not only that, I'm on the other side. I know why these people are doing them. I've been in the cell with a cop yeah. before, you know, and it's, it's, it's just understanding the pain of these people and the anger in these people, the right. betrayal, the, the, the feeling of, of being alone and nobody cares. And why should I care? Nobody cares. You know, and all, all you have to do as an officer is just talk. Mm. That's all you have to do. You don't have to like them. You don't have to care about them. They care about their feelings or anything. All you have to do is talk to them, show a little bit of compassion, and that's it. That's all you have to do. And, and a lot of good officers that do that, they get chastised by other officers for doing that. Why? Because those other officers would rather just go in there and beat their ass. And that's it. And that's why a lot of these good people that we have in the prison system, they leave. Because they don't want to be involved with those people. They make it worse. These, this is true. And this is, again, why I 
bring the messages that I do and I hold no punches and I tell people exactly what they are. And I put names on blast. I put people on blast because I want to start creating a database of names, you know, that's, that's a pretty big database that you're creating. Well, it's, it's, it has to start somewhere and hopefully it forms into something, but I, I, I hope that over time enough people coming forward and saying a name over and over again, whether it's an attorney, whether it's, it's a, it's a prosecutor, whether it's a judge, right. You know, whether it's well, a representative. One thing I've learned through the years is as an officer working in the prison, if you're doing bad things or if you're doing good things, it's going to be out there. The public is out there talking about it. I see it. You know, I belong to some of the groups on both sides and names are flying around like crazy. I mean, I I see these people talking names that people I know and all I'm thinking in my mind is they're not wrong because they see it just like I seen it, you know. So if you're an officer and then you're doing bad things and you do or you're doing good things, you need to either change your ways or something because your name is out there too much and that is not something that's going to be a good thing for you in the end if you're doing the bad things so you going in as a representative are you willing to to put these people on blast like what are you going to do about what you know well that's a good question and for me the first thing that needs to happen is leadership okay the leadership in the Department of Corrections ultimately has to change, okay? Because that leadership has been in the department 27 plus years, okay? And that culture that's in the Department of Corrections is not changing unless there's new leadership, okay? One thing that's happening, and and you'll see it and you'll agree with me, is that let's use the four officers in Miami, for example, that just had that incident and got arrested. So right now, those four officers are being held accountable, okay? But for me, bigger question is, why are we not holding the leadership accountable at that institution or even higher? Because those are the people that are ultimately allowing the culture to continue. It's not the officers. It's the leadership. So for me, that's how I am going to want to approach, you know, being in the legislature is the leadership. I'm focused on the leadership. And, and what does that mean, though? You, you know, the leadership, how, like, where do you see the leadership being? And, <clears throat> and how do you see changing that? Because for me, the leadership, like the root of all of this goes into the 13th Amendment. And, and the belief of, of what the 13th Amendment was really instilled for wasn't to abolish slavery. It was just to pacify the people because people mm-hmm. were killing themselves, right? right? So it was how can we pacify these people yet still keep these people on the plantations, on the railroads, building, because we can't lose that. We're right. in the midst of, of building America, you know right. what I mean? So that to me in itself is, is where the problem really spawns from. Well, it actually, and I'll put it in a different term without saying names, but if I am, say, a captain, for example, okay, and when I started out as an officer, I was following lead, 
you know, by other officers who did bad things. So I jumped on the bandwagon and did the bad things that they're doing because I think it's okay and they're going to protect me. So now as a captain, I'm a captain now, and I did those bad things. I know who they are. They're my friends. So I'm going to protect my, my friends that are doing the same things that I did. Why? Because if I turn on them, they're going to turn on me and say, oh, you did it. You know, we, we, we could do it too. Mm-hmm. So that's how I want to fight that culture because those people that are in the leadership positions, like a captain, they did those things and they're going to continue to allow their officers to do it and they're going to protect them and they're going to teach them how to get away with these crimes that they're committing. Because inside the prison, as you know, there's no accountability. There's no cameras. There's, well, there's cameras, but you know, they don't have body cameras. Right. So that's how they're doing the things that they're doing. And that leadership goes up higher than the captain. And I know some of these people that are in the higher positions, you know, where they stood on a lot of these, these things that happened and who they protected. Because I, I, I still am in a lot of communications with a lot of good officers and higher than officers as well. You know, people talk to me all the time. So there's things that go on there that I still hear about from the same people that are doing those crimes. It's, it goes deep. It's very deep. Well, there's no question because, again, we're talking the prison industrial system. Right. And, and it's 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 me exposing exactly what this means and how much money <clears throat> this thing generates. Yes. You know, and it's it's free money for the government because it's right. all paid by for the taxpayer. Right. You know, so when we're sitting here wondering why we're working 60 to 80 hours a week, this is some of the reasons why. Yes. Let me let me give you an example of the of the wasted money in the department of corrections. And I, I use myself as an example because it's, it's factual. Okay. So my second termination, okay. I was terminated for failure to report. So four inmates were planning to escape from Lake CI back in 2018. I don't know if you heard about it. Um, I came across all the information. Why? Because inmates trust me. They knew that they could talk to me. And I wasn't just going to beat their ass or call them a snitch and whatever. So I get all the information. I do exactly what I'm supposed to do according to policy. But in fact, I actually seen the warden and my captain first before I seen anybody gave them the story. And they blew me off. You know, the warden got up and walked away. He didn't care because it was me. So my captain is like, okay, go do your, your incident report. Go see lieutenant so-and-so i don't want to say names and i do all that i do everything the way i'm supposed to but because that warden didn't like me and i had reported a captain for beating an inmate before that incident he didn't like me so he took it upon himself to take that whole situation and just get rid of me by firing me for failure to report but ultimately in the end even from the beginning, I was able to prove that I did what I was supposed to do, but that warden didn't care. He wanted me gone. So the whole thing is that the state wasted roughly quarter of a million dollars on my case for nothing. 
for absolutely nothing when the warden could have found out what I told him and knew that I did my job and ended it right there. You did your job. Good job. Go back to go back to the compound. No, it didn't go that route. It went the other route, costing the taxpayers a, a shit ton of money for nothing. That's just a, one example. And it happens all the time to good officers. They get fired, they get suspended, and they, they, they got to get the PBA to represent them. And it costs money. It costs the state money. It's a whole back and forth vicious cycle of going after good officers. And it happens every day. Well, because it's all unchecked, right? Yep. It's all unchecked because we, the people, view prisons as either criminals. We don't care what happens to them. Lock them away. We don't want right. to see them. The more you guys did great. Got them yeah. off the street. Good and, job. And I, back and I, to get, blue. I get that. I get that whole you know, thought process. I understand it. But, but these people, these officers that are doing this job, you, know, you have a lot of good people. And you're hurting their lives by doing the things that you do like they did to me. Okay, I could take it. I'm a fighter. But some of these people that I know that went through this, they don't want to fight. They just want to live their lives quiet, you know, come to work. But then when they get put into positions like they did, they do, they just quit. They just leave. They say, oh, I don't want nothing to do with that. You know, I, I and they just leave. And it's sad because there's a lot of good people in the prison system. And it, it, it is sad. I hate it. Well, one of the things I would love to see changed immediately is stop calling these people correctional officers. Why? Well, one, they're not correctional officers. There's no correction about them. Okay, I get that. I get that. You know. And it gives them a sense of empowerment to feel like they are correctional officers. You know, um, we have to if we're going to talk about changing the, the structure of in society of prison, we have to make it more of a rehabilitative state you know and stop treating these people as as cold-hearted sadistic people and and more as broken people yes there are sadistic people in there no question there are people that i saw that i've told to their face you never need to be out in in society and they right. would just smile at me because they know that they're they're too far gone right you know what i mean but we have to separate those from the individuals that have issues right. and want to be productive, just don't know how for, right. for the life of them, they can't figure it out. Right. You know, but we're just throwing all of these people in one pot. You know what I mean? And, and, and discarding them. True. And I would like to see that. And I would love to start seeing these prisons emptied out with these nonviolent elderly you know, um, anybody who has any kind of basis of factually innocence, right? And they need to be separated out of population and, and such. I'm dealing with an individual now, Curtis Davis, out of the state of Mississippi, right? He was coerced at 23 years old to take a plea for manslaughter. And he was coerced because they had his wife down there in handcuffs, their newborn baby. And wow. they were telling him that they were going to charge the wife with first degree murder, him with first degree murder, and the baby would become a ward of the state unless he signed this plea that day. Wow. Now, the kicker to this was the DNA evidence had came out on him 
four days prior. But the police department spent all of their resources on investigating just this man, nobody else. Mm -hmm. And when they found out, when the DNA evidence came back that he was completely innocent, they knew that their ass was in hot grease because they had nowhere else to go. They spent everything on this guy. Right. And so they, they came in, they got the conviction from him. They got him to sign the plea, you know, and now this man has been in prison for 16 years trying to get somebody to overturn his plea, but it's, you're talking about damn near impossible Yeah, because it all boils down to you signed a plea agreement that said you were guilty. Right. Wow. That's, that's, that's bad. This goes on in every courtroom every day. We're getting kids getting in there. Mark, I just got a call from a woman in Virginia, right, who told me that my podcast saved her life because she was about ready to commit suicide, right? This is a woman. She she is an emergency room nurse, okay? She's trusted the police her whole life. She's trusted the system her whole life until her son got wrapped up in it dealing with addiction coming off Xanax bars, right? The kid was Xanaxed out one night and uh, got into an argument with the stepdad. He was 17 years old, got into an argument with the stepdad. I guess he had a little pocket knife in his drawer. He grabbed his pocket knife and ran out of the house. Somehow police were called. I think the mother called the police for a welfare check because she was scared for her son. You know, she knew that he was he was drugged out. He was mm. out of his mind. Right. And he just ran out of the house with a knife. She didn't know what to do. You're talking about a woman who she said she was just as naive as can be. Right. The police came. She says she watched the whole thing. She says she saw a cop run out of the dark, tackle her son from behind. And when he turned, he stabbed the cop in his leg. Mm. They charged the boy with capital uh, attempted murder on a, on a law enforcement. Wow right went through the trial the cop the, the the courtroom was filled with police through the whole trial and come sentencing they found him guilty of course she said come sentencing the judge denied the recommendations of a drug treatment facility and a youthful offender program mm. and sent him to a maximum security prison <clears throat> gave him 30 years wow. at 17 years old whoa we have no rehabilitation at all. This is this this is what I'm talking about, right? And this goes on all the time. We have yeah. almost three million people incarcerated. Florida, <laughs> you heard the, the stats in, in, in Florida cares. Yeah. You know, we have more lifers in Florida than 30 other states combined. You know, I could get, right. I could go on and on. Lloyd Johnson is another one in for a triple homicide, even though that he was found not guilty of possessing the gun. But yet he's still guilty of a triple homicide. How is that possible? Wow. And it doesn't get any easier when they get in prison, because no. when they when they go to confinement and they go to DR court, <laughs> you know how that works, just like I know how it works. You know, these people are talking about it before they even make a decision. They already they're already going to find the inmate guilty. You know, you know that sometimes there's good evidence that shows that, you know, they're not guilty or, you know, maybe they are, but the decision's already made even before DR court starts. 
I was sent to a maximum security prison in the federal in, in the federal institutions, all because of a charge. I was a, a first time nonviolent drug offender. Right. But yet I was sent to a maximum security prison because I had a charge of aggravated assault. Right. And I took that charge in, to trial and I beat that charge. I was found guilty of a lesser charge, improper exhibition of a weapon, which is a misdemeanor. It's not even a felony. Right. Yeah. I beat this charge at trial. But yet when I get into the system, I'm held as if I was found guilty of that charge. And I was told that it doesn't that the, the guilt or innocence doesn't matter. But in the system, they only look at the body of the crime. Right. And I'm held accountable for that. So even though that I was found not guilty of that body of crime, you're still hold me accountable. You send me to a maximum security prison. Right. Hmm. This goes on in every prison all the time. And yeah. then we're releasing these inmates, right? We're releasing these people back into society. Angry. You know what I mean? Angry that, that, that the system did this to them. Yeah. And then they're subjected to stay in the poor communities. Mark, these are the issues. Yeah. Right. Because now they have a conviction. Same with me. I have a felony conviction. I didn't want to stay in the community that I was staying in because it's riddled with crime. But in order for me to move out of that community, I have to put a, a house that we're buying in another woman's name. Yeah. A woman that I don't even know. I just met. Right. Wow. But we're talking about getting married. We're talking about having a life together, you know, and we buy a house together. But it has to go in her name. Why? Because it's a gated community and all that is controlled by HOA. Right. And you can't. You can't be a felon living in there, right? Can't be a convicted felon living in a gated community. So we had to put everything in her name when I wanted, you know, when I started my foundation, started talking about criminal justice, right? The relationship became toxic. She didn't want anything to do with that. I had to get out. Oh, well, see you later. What right. can I do? Yeah. I'm back in the poor community. And guess wow. what's here? Casinos, uh, liquor, you know, liquor stores, gun stores, pawn shops, drugs everywhere, all the yeah. elements of crime in one small area and us returning citizens are forced to live in that area. Yeah. Wow. That's deep. I don't know what to say to that. I, I, it, it's across America like that in those communities everywhere. And that they, that they keep them like that for a reason. But yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, it's, and I have people that, that say that they want me to run for office. You know, why yeah. don't you run for a spot? Why don't you run for office? And, and it's not off the plate. I don't think I have the support for it. Nobody knows who the hell I am, but it's not off the plate. Right. You know? um, well, but a, a lot of people around me are having a hard time with me running because they're doing bad things, but yet they can't look at me and try to dig up something that I did bad, you know, when I have a great chance of winning. And it, and, it, and it bothers them. That's what I have to deal with. Well, it's just pushing through, partner. You know, oh, and yeah. again, this, oh, is, yeah. this is why I don't accept federal money. Right. I, don't, I can go get a grant right now and change everything for me. But as we discussed earlier, I know what comes with that stuff. Right. Then I have to tiptoe around politicians. Then I have to because all they have to do is come and say, well, I see you got a federal grant. We mm -hmm. can pull that grant from you. We can do this. We can do these things. I don't yeah. want their money. This is why I say 
for people like us, when you see that there are individuals that are willing to stick their neck out for the community, the community has to rally behind these people. When we see that there's a cop that is quote unquote whistleblowing, right? We have to stand up for these people. Prosecutors as well. I'm very hard on prosecutors, but I know there are some good prosecutors yeah. right, who, who will stand up against corruption. But when they're fired, right? We have to stand behind these people. We have to rally behind them because we need those people in place. True. But we don't. We worry about what Tom Brady's doing and we worry about, I always call out Tom Brady. I'm mad Tom <laughs> Brady came here, man, because he brought all these people with him. I don't know nothing about that. <laughs> Which is another issue that we got going on here, Mark. You know that they're raising the people's rent $500 here in the yeah. Tampa Bay area. They're doing it here too. I hear it. They're trying to evict these people so they can sell these properties. And all of these rich people are coming into the Tampa Bay area buying all of this stuff up because they know the escalation. Yeah. They figured they'd kick all the people out. They could start over, build their own communities. Like you say, everybody's dumping out of New York. And what comes out of New York? Money. Yep. Where are they coming? Florida. Yep. But meanwhile, the people that live here can't afford to live because they keep raising it. The homeless here in Tampa have escalated, and 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 I don't know how much and and so fast. I go in downtown, and they're they're everywhere now. God wow. bless their soul. Wow, you know what I mean. And it's yeah. it's it's never been like that in Tampa. You would see them; they were in areas, but now they're everywhere. Yeah. <sighs> Who can afford to pay you know two thousand a month rent? <laughs> you know, I have family that that live here now, moved here last year. You know, it's it's hard for them. I see it. Because the rents are through the roof. And how do you yeah, fix but, it? Yeah, but tell them, yeah, go get a job, right? There's jobs everywhere, people say. There's yeah. jobs everywhere. There's no reason why one of these homeless people can't go get a job. They, don't, they have no idea. Easier said than done. They can't even get clean, right? Yeah. Who's, like a homeless person is going to walk into where? One of these restaurants smelling, you know, unclean and yeah. try to get a job. Nobody's going to hire these people. Right. I can't even get felons hired. They're going to yeah. hire homeless. True. You know how many people I get in my car? They tell me I can't get nobody wants to work. I can't get nobody to work. Well, hell, I got felons right now that want to work. Can't yeah. get no job. Well, we don't hire felons. Well, there you go. Yeah. But tell them, go get a job. Yeah, that's hard. I can't even get Disney World to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is I, I went for big. You this know. is why I said, you know what, I, I'm not going to sit here and work 40, 60, 70 hours a week making somebody else money. And I'm expected to be on the bottom, you know, maybe in, in two years of hard work, I get a dollar raise. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. When when I'm perfectly marketable myself, I'm going to take a chance on me. I'm going to build my education. I'm going to market myself. I'm going to build right. my own nonprofit. I'm going to build my podcast. I'm going to get out here in Uber. You know, Uber in itself was a lifesaver for me. Not many people have that opportunity now because they changed that, that structure. But I got in when the original CEO was in there and he wasn't doing background checks. You know, so you're, I, you're grandfathered in. I'm grandfathered in, you know, and so that has saved my life because that has given me the opportunity to have my own time. Right. You know, so so Uber in itself, you know, is a story that I'll probably end up sharing with them. But 
the third episode here, we're going to talk about solutions. We talked about all the issues in the community, you know, the, the most relevant ones. What, what can really be done and, and how can we, the community, help you get it done, stand behind you, help you get it done?